Blog Talk Radio.
The following sermon is by John MacArthur, pastor, author, and Bible teacher with Grace to You. If you've never contacted Grace to You, we want to send you a free booklet by John called God's Sufficient Word. It will help you see that for every concern you have, every decision, every struggle, every sorrow you face, the Bible has the wisdom you need. Request your free booklet by writing to word at gty.org. That's word at gty.org. This offer is good in North America and Europe through December 2022. And now, unleashing God's truth one verse at a time, here's grace to you Bible teacher John MacArthur. For um, the last several months, we have been working our way through the book of Ephesians because it's so foundational, so practical, and covers so much of the range of Christian life. We have found ourselves now in the fifth chapter of Ephesians uh, in a section that deals with marriage. Uh, We're going to be looking at that this morning with particular attention to the husband. So this is your day, men, to hear from heaven about your responsibility as a husband. But before we get there, I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, and I'd like to lay a bit of a foundation so that we can understand what we're up against in the current world that we live in, the fallen world, with regard to marriage. In uh, Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18, we have the inspired record of the creation of woman. And I, I just want you to follow along as I read, starting in Genesis 2 and verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field, but for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed." So in Genesis chapter 2, God basically creates a man, and then from that man creates a woman and inaugurates what Peter calls the grace of life, which is marriage. And marriage in Scripture has a number of purposes. One, companionship, and that's what you see here. Man needed a helper suitable for him. Marriage also has the purpose of procreation. Back in chapter 1, 
It says, in a broad sense, God created man in His own image and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So God's design for marriage is companionship and children. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we find that God's design for marriage is also moral purity. We are instructed there about the fact that you must marry rather than to burn. That is to say, rather than having unfulfilled natural sexual desires, you need to marry. So it's God's design for moral purity. But I think in the broad sense, marriage is, with all of that being true, also it is a place which is most defined by extensive experiences of love. Love for one another, love for children, love for grandchildren, love for great-grandchildren, love for extended family. It is really the core of human love. And a marriage should then be the best gift. It should be the, the gift that keeps on giving. It gives love to the two that marry, and then it adds to that love with children, and then it adds with spouses, and then it adds with grandchildren, and then it just keeps on adding more and more fulfilling relationships of love. That was God's design. And in the beginning, it was a beautiful relationship. And verse 25 of chapter 2 sums it up by saying, the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. There was no such thing as a perverted thought or an evil thought of any kind in their mind. No shame. But then we come to chapter 3. And in chapter 3, we are introduced to Satan, the serpent, who comes and tempts Eve to distrust God, to actually believe that God was flawed, that God didn't want her to eat of the fruit because she would have the knowledge of good and evil and she would be like God, and God didn't want anyone intruding into His territory. And so in a very flawed way, He had restricted her from something that was good. She bought the devil's lie, and in Genesis 3, 6, she saw that the tree was good for food, that's the lust of the eyes, and that it was, uh, that's the lust of the flesh, I mean, and that it was delight to the eyes, that's the lust of the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, and that's the pride of life, the three basic categories which define our temptation. So based upon the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, she took from its fruit and ate, gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. They knew they were naked. All of a sudden, shame appeared. We don't know the exact thoughts that were in their mind, but they were corrupted. They were perverted. Even in that marriage, they felt embarrassed by their shame and guilt and sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They realized as the only two people in the world that their thoughts could be corrupted if they were exposed to nakedness. Clothing came into existence at this point. God actually clothed them by the sacrifice of a lamb, demonstrating that the only covering for sin would be such a sacrifice, namely and ultimately the Lord Jesus Christ. From that point on, clothing became the barrier, the normal human barrier to lust and shame. 
any society that begins to sink into the morass and the depths of sin will begin to expose itself in nakedness and ultimately, as we have seen, proliferate pornography and nakedness everywhere as it finds its contentment and its satisfaction in what is offensive to God. So now there's shame, and beyond the shame, there's a curse. God says to the man in verse 9, where are you? And then he confronts them both. First the woman, he says, you are cursed, verse 16, you will experience pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, and yet your desire will be for your husband. This isn't a desire for him that's healthy. This is an, an impulse to overpower him, to rule over him, to usurp his leadership, and he will dominate you. And so you have the conflict of marriage in the fall. The woman seeks to overpower the man. She seeks to operate independently as if she were the leader, which she did in her succumbing to temptation without the protection of her husband, and the husband will then dominate her. And so you have the abuse of that relationship going both ways. In addition, we read in verses 17 to 19 that the ground is cursed, and man is going to toil all the days of his life to subdue the ground to be able to produce survival. So there's not just going to be the bliss of the garden and two innocent people enjoying everything about a perfect marriage. There are going to be all kinds of complications. In addition to that, Satan is going to come after the man and the woman. Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. Satan is going to come against marriage against the woman, and eventually Satan is going to come against the ultimate seed of the woman who is the Lord Jesus Christ. So marriage has really fallen on disastrous, disastrous ground. From innocence without shame, there has been a reversal of roles. She acts independently of her husband, and he succumbs to her temptation to join her in the sin. By the time you get to chapter 4, the, the impulses of the fallen human beings are working and been passed on to the next generation of Cain and Abel, so that you have fratricide, the murder of the brother, Cain kills Abel. And then, not long after this, you run into polygamy in, in the early chapters of Genesis, and then perverted sex and then adultery, and then homosexuality, and then fornication, and then rape, and then prostitution, and then incest, and then seduction, and you're not even out of the book of Genesis. All of this comes because of the fall. Two cursed sinners creating more cursed sinners, creating a cursed society, under the control of Satan and exposed to all manner of temptations and corruptions, struggles to find the meaning of marriage. Sin attacks marriage. Selfishness attacks marriage. Satan attacks marriage. Society attacks marriage. 
And early on in Genesis, the attack is so successful, so disastrous, that by the time you get to chapter 6, God drowns the entire world. Drowns the entire world because the thoughts and intents of their hearts were only evil continually. So the bliss of that first marriage was lost in the fall, and it didn't take very long before God literally drowned the entire world. With the exception of Noah's wife and their sons and wives, eight people survived. But when Noah came out of the ark, we found out very fast that he was a sinner and that sin had not survived Sin had not been extinguished, rather, but sin had survived the flood because there were eight people who were sinners who came out of the ark. And so immediately there were more of these same kinds of perversions. In fact, some of the ones in the list I gave you came after the flood. Most of them actually did. So marriage has grave difficulty in this kind of setting. Let me say it again. Sin attacks marriage, selfishness attacks marriage, Satan attacks marriage, and society attacks marriage. Though marriage has a hard road, even though it is the grace of life. Its destruction is um, constant and uh, it's exponential. Not too many years ago, even in our society, we could look back and say people honored marriage. Not anymore. Marriage is largely irrelevant to this young generation coming up. We have seen the destruction of marriage by all kinds of things. I don't need to go through the litany of those. The all-out assault on marriage is just satanic and, and sinful. We are living in the era of a, almost a pre-flood kind of society where we wouldn't be surprised to see God judge again, this time by fire. So marriage, God's wonderful creation, the grace of life, can it be saved? Let's go back to Ephesians 5. Let's go back to the beginning in the sense of what God intended restored in Christ. Restored in Christ. Let me read Chapter 5 of Ephesians, starting at verse 22 and down through verse 33. This is the divine design and order for a marriage that can be, in spite of fallenness, a grace of life. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself up for her, so that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, that He might present to Himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless." So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of His body. 
For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reverence to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Now, backing up to verse 18, just to remind you, those who are Spirit-filled, verse 18, filled with the Spirit, those who are joyful worshipers, verse 19, those who are constantly thankful, verse 20, and those who are mutually submissive are the ones who are going to enjoy the richness of marriage as the grace of life. Last week we talked about the wives. This week I want to pick it up at verse 25 and the duty of the husband. And it's so simple and impossible to misunderstand. One command, husbands love your wives. Nothing about authority there. Nothing about dominance. Nothing about ruling. Nothing about subjecting. Nothing about commanding. Husbands, love your wives. That defines the kind of headship in a marriage that God desires. Obviously, it's never abusive. It's never overbearing. It's never inconsiderate. It's never thoughtless. It's never harsh. It's never unkind. Because it is defined as love. And this is the highest and noblest of loves. The verb is agapao, that love which is the love of the will, which transcends all other loves, which by its own nature is selfless and sacrificial. So husbands, it's pretty simple. The responsibility is to love your wives. That's, that's the command. And this is to be generated by the husband. Understand, the command is to the husband to love. It says nothing about the wife whether she's lovable or not, or whether she's occasionally lovable, or rarely lovable, or never lovable, doesn't change the command. Because the command is to love your wives. And that is the reality. And the, the kind of love, again, is the highest and noblest and purest and best love. Now, Let's define that, and uh, we'll allow the Spirit of God to do that for us in a way that is just really overpowering. What do you mean, love your wives? Oh, this is what I mean. Verse 25, just as Christ also loved the church. Wow, that sets the standard pretty high. Love your wives as Christ loved the church? What kind of love was that? Well, he proved His love for us while we were enemies. He loved us when we were unlovable. He loved us when we were rebellious. He loved us when we were full of hatred. He loved us when we were wretched, vile, sinful. That's the kind of love. This is not love that is won by the object. This is love that is given in spite of the failures of the object. Chrysostom, the golden-mouthed preacher in the 4th century church, 
wrote this, Hear the measure of this love. If it be needful that you should give your life for her, or be cut to pieces a thousand times, or endure anything whatever, refuse it not. Christ bought His church and brought His church to His feet by His great love, not by threats nor any such thing. So do you conduct yourself toward your wife. He understood exactly what this is saying. Love your wife? How? How do I love my wife? What do you mean by that? I mean, love your wife as Christ also loved the church. That's the model and that's the pattern and no less than that. Now, this is just stunning in the context of the people of Ephesus and the Roman world because Roman law basically treated women as if they were slaves. They were less than human. In fact, Cato, writing Roman law, says this, If you were to catch your wife in an act of infidelity, you may kill her without a trial. But if she were to catch you, she would not venture to touch you with her finger. She has no such right. Well, that's the role of women in ancient Rome. So what God is saying through the Apostle Paul is shocking. Love your wives and love them as Christ also loved the church. This sets the standard so high. There are several considerations with regard to defining this love over in 1 Peter 3. If you look at it for just a moment, 1 Peter 3, 7. You get a little more insight into it, and we looked at this briefly last week. You husbands, in the same way, and th these are some of the ways that love expresses itself, live with your wives first in an understanding way. This love demands understanding, knowledge, some translations say, knowing her sensitivity, knowing her feelings, knowing her needs. This, this is not uh, some macho, independent, um, insensitive kind of dominance that we're talking about, but rather it is living in a way that displays the fact that you are in touch with the depths of her understanding, her feelings, her thoughts, her desires. Secondly, it calls not only for such consideration, but even for chivalry as with someone weaker since she is a woman. Not weaker intellectually, not weaker in terms of wisdom, not weaker in any spiritual sense. But by God's design, man is stronger. He is the protector. He is the provider. He is the source of security and strength in the union. She should know that. She should feel protected. She should feel secure. You are her knight in shining armor. And then thirdly, not only consideration and a measure of chivalry, but you should show her honor. So this love encompasses showing honor 
as a fellow heir of the grace of life. In other words, you're treating her like a believer. You're treating her like it's the communion of the saints. This is my beloved, my friend, it says in Song of Solomon. And that's the kind of expression. This is my beloved. This is my friend. We are heirs together of the grace of life. We, we share commonly in the grace that God has extended to us in Christ and by which He has brought us together in this union. So we are to love our wives in a, a way that expresses the understanding of who they are, expresses their need for strength and security, and expresses the common communion as heirs together in the kingdom of God so that we defer as we would to any other believer, Philippians 2, considering others better than ourselves. That's how you treat each other in the kingdom. So this is the biblical definition. We are to love in the way Christ loved the church. Go back to Ephesians and, uh, and chapter 5, and I want to kind of break out what Paul says here. It's very simple. So what does it mean to love the way Christ loved the church? Okay, he's going to tell us. First, verse 25, he gave himself up for her. He gave himself up for her. That's where it starts. It is self-sacrificing loves. The, the Spirit-filled husband loves his wife, not for what she can do for him, but for what he can do for her. That kind of love seeks only her joy, only her fulfillment, only her spiritual benefit. That's how that love works. And that's the way Christ loved, right? Philippians chapter 2, he didn't hold on to what he had in glory, equality with God, but he took on the form of a servant, humbled himself to death, even death on the cross. Why did he do that? It was condescending sacrifice for the objects of his divine love. A real love is never tyrannical. A real love is always sacrificial. This is a Christ-like love. You have to find every possible way that you can demonstrate setting yourself aside for the sake of your spouse. It's love that is that selfless. In John, a couple of passages in John 13, there was a, an upper room uh, moment where Jesus had uh, expressed his love. John 13 begins, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the max. He he had maximum love for them. They weren't very lovable. They were all arguing about who was going to be greatest in the kingdom. Uh, nobody wanted to disqualify himself by washing somebody else's feet. Uh, they all thought they were too good for that, so they didn't do that, which was a common courtesy that should have been done uh, before a, such an event, such a dinner. And because they refused to do it, Jesus steps up, and you know the story. He, he washed their feet. He humbled himself to wash their feet. And at, toward the end of the 13th chapter in verse 34, he says, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. What, what, what was the way in which he had just loved them? By washing their feet. That's what he's referring to. Even as I have loved you, you love one another. And then he says, by this all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. 
And what he means by that is the definition of love is humble service to someone else. Selfless sacrifice for someone else. Over in John 15, on that same occasion, verse 13, Jesus said, Greater love has no one than this, that one lays down his life for his friend. So it starts out, love washes someone's feet, and then love gives up its own life. Peter calls it ectonase love, stretched love. It stretches as far as it needs to to embrace its object. It really involves the death of self. This is the key to a good marriage, is the death of self, particularly the death of self in the husband, so that he is characterized by the love that is defined in Scripture in 1 Corinthians 13. You remember this, right? Love is patient. Think of this in your marriage. Love is patient. Love is kind. It is not jealous. Love does not brag. It is not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Okay, that's divine love. That's the kind of love that's shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit through salvation, and that is how a husband is to love his wife. And by the way, all of those things that I read out of 1 Corinthians 13 are verbs Verbs, not static nouns. He's not describing love as if you could take a snapshot. He's showing it as if it's a video. It's a way of life. It's help, help and humble service as a continual flow of life. That's how husbands are to act toward their wives. Just pulling out one, one of those characteristics in verse 5. Love does not seek its own. It does not seek its own. In the language of Philippians 2, considers other better than itself. So when a man is spirit-filled, when a man is filled with joyful praise, when a man is characterized by constant thankfulness, when a man has a submissive heart, he will love his wife enough to sacrifice for her to sacrifice for her continually. So this softens the authority that the Lord is talking about when He says wives are to submit. Because they are submitting to one who totally sacrifices Himself to lead them and provide for them. Death to self is critical. And that's a spiritual reality, right? Take up your cross and follow Me. Die daily, be crucified with Christ, look not on your own things. Now this is really the, the starting point of this kind of love. You've got to do away with yourself. You might think about it this way. Here's how you could describe dying to self. When you are forgotten or neglected or purposely set aside and you sting and hurt with the insult of the oversight, but your heart is happy being counted worthy to suffer for Christ, that is dying to self. When your good is evil spoken of, when your wishes are crossed, your advice disregarded, your opinions ridiculed, 
and you refuse to let anger rise in your heart or even defend yourself, but take it all in patient, loving silence, that is dying to self. When you lovingly and patiently bear any disorder, any irregularity, any annoyance, when you can stand face to face with folly and extravagance and insensibility and endure it as Jesus did, that is dying to self. When you are content with any food, any offering, any clothing, any climate, any society, any solitude, any interruption by the will of God, that is dying to self. When you never care to refer to yourself in a conversation or record your own good works or itch after commendation, when you can truly love to be unknown, that is dying to self. When you see another prosper and have his needs met and can honestly rejoice with him in spirit and feel no envy nor question God while your own needs are far greater and in desperate circumstances, that is dying to self. When you can receive correction and reproof from one of less importance than yourself and humbly submit inwardly as well as outwardly, finding no rebellion and no resentment rising in your heart, that is dying to self. I, I, re I read that to you because I want you to understand the range of dying to self is vast. So first of all, if you're going to love your wife as Christ loves the church, it's a sacrificial love. Secondly, it's a purifying love. Go down to verse 26. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. This is the this is the model. This is the standard. You are not only to sacrifice for her, but you are to be the instrument that God uses to sanctify her. Set her apart from sin, which means you don't lead her to do things that are sinful. You don't hit the hot buttons that start arguments because you're angry and trigger hostility with her. That's inducing sinful response. Why? Because you are committed, as Christ was, to the glory of His church. I love that. The church in all her glory, in doxon, all her splendor. The word could be translated real beauty. And the real beauty of, of a woman is that inward beauty, right? That's back to First Peter again. Not the clothing that she wears and the jewelry but the, the hidden beauty of the heart. So you are concerned with her true beauty, which means you're concerned with her true purity. You desire that she be without spot. Stain is the word in the Greek. Or wrinkle, which means a flaw. Or any such thing. You, you don't want anything to mar the beauty of your wife and the beauty of her wi uh, of your wife is defined at the end of verse 27 as holy and blameless you are an instrument of her sanctification that's why i said last week marriage is just really the husband doing anything and everything that brings joy and spiritual benefit 
to his wife. It's a simple idea. You are to be used by God to cleanse her, and particularly by the washing of water with the Word. That, that's the cleansing agent. John 15.3 says it's the Word that cleanses us. Titus 3.5, uh, the washing of regeneration by the Word. Christ purifies His church by washing His church with the Word, and that is the role of the husband. To be the cleansing instrument using the Word of God to wash his wife so that her true beauty can be seen. Jesus prayed, Sanctify them by thy truth, thy word is truth. The Word is the sanctifying agent. The Word cleanses. Christ loves His church enough to sacrifice Himself for it and to then go on cleansing His church so that she would be without spot or wrinkle and holy and blameless. What a beautiful picture of how a husband is the sanctifying instrument of the Spirit of God for his wife. So sacrifice and purity mark Christ-like love. And there can't be any less standard than this. Christ is the standard and His love for the church. There's a third thing to say about this. We are to love our wives not only in a sacrificing and purifying way, but in a caring way. And that's what we see in verses 28 to 30. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. In other words, you are one flesh. You're to love your wife as your own body. He who loves his own wife loves himself. In other words, if you want the best for yourself, then love your wife because you really are inseparable from her. And her contentment and her reciprocating love will be your greatest joy. No one ever hated his own flesh, verse 29 says, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church. And here we're back to Christ again. In the same way that Christ cherishes and nourishes His church, in the same way that He desires the best, that He offers continual care. You know, I think about um, the fact that He has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. I think about earlier in, in the book of Ephesians, how much does Christ love us? He loves us enough. If you look at chapter 1, that He chose us before the foundation of the world, that He adopted us, that He redeemed us, verse 7, that He forgave us. And all of this He lavished. He lavished on us. This is lavish care. We have been blessed, verse 3, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. That, that's what this is talking about. Bless your wife. Sacrifice for her. Be a purifying instrument of God in her life. And lavish her with all possible blessings.
Marriage is difficult. We get it. We all have the same challenges. Society strikes against us. Satan's coming against us. Our own flesh makes it hard. But here are the patterns. And the assumption is if you are commanded to do with your wife what Christ does in loving His church, that you have the power to do that. And of course, Romans 5 says God has shed His love abroad in your heart through His Holy Spirit. What, what does it mean then to care for her? It means to make sure that she has everything that meets her needs. Not necessarily wants, not outrageous and outlandish desires, but that she is fully provided for, protected, preserved, cared for with all those things that rightly should be expected. What you would do for yourself, you would do no less for her because you are one flesh. Nourish is the idea of feeding. Cherish is the idea of warming with body heat. So you provide everything that she needs and you provide the security and the warmth of ongoing love and affection. And you do this because Christ is your example. Now there's one more characteristic of this love. It is a purifying love. It is a sacrificial love. It is a caring love. And go down to verse 31. It is also an unbreakable love. And here is a quote from back in Genesis 2. We read it earlier. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is an unbreakable love, an indivisible love. You become one flesh. One is the indivisible number, right? That's why God hates divorce. What God has joined together, don't let man separate. This is to be the kind of love that Christ has for His church. And Romans 8 says, nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord, right? Romans 8. It's that same kind of love. It's the kind of love that leaves behind, strong word, means to abandon parents, and then cleaves, proskalao. It literally means to be glued to, to be stuck to, not stuck with, but stuck to. <laughs> it's, um, it's designed by, by God is to be an unbreakable love. So th this is how husbands love their wives. Now, if you're looking at the idea that a husband has authority, this, what you may have thought in the past about what that means, and you may have chafed against that kind of authority, whatever authority and responsibility for leadership a husband has is to be defined as sacrificial, purifying, caring, and unbreakable. And unbreakable means fidelity and faithfulness. Fidelity and faithfulness. I said recently to a couple that speaking to the man, I said, your integrity and your fidelity is her security. So the husband is to be the one who makes sure the bond is never broken. So this is how marriage 
can be what God wants it to be. Obviously, there's still going to be issues. That's why the New Testament is full of all kinds of other commands, right? And if you're deviating from living a godly life, if you're deviating from walking in the Holy Spirit, if you're deviating from having the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control, if you're functioning in fleshly ways, it makes this impossible. But the Word of God is saying it's not only possible, it's commanded. And you have, in having the Spirit of God, all the resources you need to see it fulfilled. Now, there's one final point here that just sums up what we've already said, and it's in verse 32. I described the manner of love like Christ had for His church. But here is the motive. Here is the motive. Obviously, there's a motive for your own self-fulfillment, for your own well-being, for your own joy, for your own happiness, and by the way, for the happiness of your children. Your children are only going to be as happy as you are content in your marriage. You set the tone. If you love the way Christ loved the church, men and women, if you submit the way the church submits to Christ, your children will be in the most healthy environment to most readily embrace the truth of the gospel. But there's another thing beside just having a happy home. That comes with this. And it's in verse 32. This mystery is great. This is a secret now to be revealed. Not revealed before in Scripture. What is the mystery? The mystery is I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. The mystery is this. That Christ and His relation to the church is the symbol that is demonstrated in marriage. So you have responsibility not only for your own joy and happiness and that of your children and everybody else who intersects with your life, but you are given a responsibility to show the world the relationship between Christ and His church as demonstrated in your marriage. Think about that. Think about that responsibility, that that is the motive. And if you come short of that, you have failed in what is a great, great opportunity. It's a great sacred secret now revealed that Christian marriages can demonstrate to the world the relationship between Christ and His church. Submissive, obedient wife, fulfilling all the responsibilities of love for her husband and her children, a loving husband who is sacrificial, purifying, caring, and faithful. This is the picture of marriage that demonstrates the relationship of Christ to His church. I guess the question in the end then is we need to ask ourselves, the closer, get, the closer people get to our marriage, do they get closer to seeing the relation between Christ and His church? Because that's the responsibility. It's a high calling. Being married is a very high calling. It's the grace of life. Don't embark upon it lightly, but when you do, understand that as a believer, you have now been given the responsibility 
to, to unfold the mystery of the relationship between Christ and His church so that marriage is not only in itself a marvelous reality, but it is symbolic of the work of Christ and His love for His church. So we have to think about whether our marriage demonstrates that. And that comes us, uh, takes us to verse 33. And this is just a summation. And after all of this, each individual among you, let's get back to the beginning, love his own wife even as himself. And we're back to love. And the wife must see to it that she not obeys, but that she respects her husband. What we're talking about in a marriage is not dominance and submission. We're talking about love and respect. Okay? We're talking about love and respect. Those are the, the defining sum, summary words. Love and respect. Love and respect will make a blessed marriage and a wonderful testimony of Christ and His church. Father, we come to You now at the close of our time together, thankful that You have led us into the truth again. Thank You for marriage. Thank You for all those who are here married. Lord, help all of us to live the principles of marriage that have been laid out so clearly for Your honor and glory and joy and so that we would even be a testimony of the reality of Christ's love for His church. And I pray for those who struggle in their marriage. I pray, Lord, that Your grace would be abundant, that they would find their way to obedience and to being filled with the Holy Spirit, joyful worship, constant thanksgiving and mutual submission so that their marriages can be everything You want them to be. May we never be looking for someone who is perfect. May we never be dissatisfied with the partner You've given us, but may we rejoice with full joy. May we always live in the wondrous reality that God has given us, the partner He has given us, to love as Christ loved the church and to respect as the church respects its Lord. We look at the society around us and we understand that this is far, far away from any thought that is captured by this contemporary culture where everything is selfish, everything is gratification, much of gratification without responsibility. Lord, may Grace Community Church be a place where virtuous marriage is visible for its purity and joy. That would be our prayer. Give us greater love and respect for each other because it honors your name. It's in that name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to John MacArthur, Bible Teacher with Grace to You.
For free access to all of John's lessons and a listing of study Bibles and books available for sale, visit Grace to Use website at gty.org. John MacArthur and Grace to You reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available at gty.org, and it includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating this digital file. Get social with Truth Be Told Radio. Check us out on our Facebook like page at Truth Be Told Radio. You can find our website at truthbetoldradio.com, that is, T-R-U-T-H-B-E-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O dot C-O-M. Truthbetoldradio.com. Do you have any questions, suggestions, comments, or want to tell us anything? Send those emails to truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. Remember, by sending us your email, you give us permission to read it on the air. So write us at truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. If you like to read blogs, we've got you covered. Check out ours at truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. That's truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. Also, follow us on Twitter as Truth, the letter B, then Told Radio. That is T-R-U-T-H-B-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O. Once again, that is Truth, the letter B only, not B-E, Told Radio. This is due to the restraints for Twitter's username link. Finally, to learn the testimony of Melissa Canchoa, the hostess of Truth Be Told Radio, see smilesandstuff.com. That's S-M-I-L-E-S-A-N-D-S-T-U-F-F dot C-O-M. Smilesandstuff.com. So stay social with us, and thanks for listening to Truth Be Told Radio. Scratching, itching ears. This is Ken Ham, a publisher of the Apologetics award-winning family magazine, Answers. Many social media influencers are gaining millions of views by saying things like, the New Testament doesn't really condemn homosexuality. So we're going to look at that claim this week. But as we begin, consider this warning from the New Testament. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. God's Word warns about false teachers who will take others captive. But where to make our thoughts captive to obedience to Christ? So what does God's Word say? Let's find out this week. Get more answers to hot-button issues on our website at AnswersRadio.com and subscribe to receive free daily email insights from Ken Ham when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com. Hey, yo, they said it was over, man. They said it was over. But it ain't over. We just getting started. Yo, 7,000, we all at. Let's go. Stand up, stand up. If you truly love the Son of Man, is alive and his people he'll revive and his fame is going to spread across the land what's up stand up stand up does anybody love the son of man trust jesus is the king so his people we will sing and forever stay worthy is the land what's up surprise no surprise i'm back in your section with jesus his death burial and resurrection more power than gravity his knowledge and strategies confound the academy 
gallery Took our blame on Calvary Those who love his name spread his fame is the policy All eyes on the mattress price of his sacrifice Let's prize our master Christ and rise in the afterlife What, did we forget about the holiness of God or something? Did we forget that God owes us a ride or something? See the snake bruise when Christ came to save dudes Who hate truth, the gospel is not fake news I gotta send the gospel sweeter than it's ever been Ain't nothing changed, let us in, we got the medicine It's still human emergency, the serpent attack You think Jesus can't save? That's alternative facts Stand up, hand up If you truly love the Son of Man Trust, Jesus is alive and his people he'll revive And his fame is gonna spread across the land What's up? Stand up, hand up Does anybody love the Son of Man? Trust, Jesus is the King So his people we will sing and forever stay worthy is the Lamb What's up? Listen to my composition Lots of rhythm but not traditional Kind of different But God's consistent No contradiction My proposition Through crucifixion He mocked and crippled His opposition It's not some fiction I'm spitting The son of God is risen And my incentive For godly living Is I'm forgiven Jesus came to unlock the prison And through the spirit He brings a new birth Like an obstetrician At times I listen A lot of Christian Hip hop is missing The proposition It's my suspicion We drop the mission Not to this But the word of God Is it not sufficient The doctrine is That the gospel fixes our shot condition, God the Spirit supplies conviction through proper diction. Against the backdrop of our tradition, the gospel glistens. A squad of Christians go out and witness that God's commission. Cause Jesus Christ got the top position, no competition. Stand up, hand up. If you truly love the Son of Man, trust Jesus is alive and his people he'll revive and his fame is gonna spread across the land. What's up? Stand up, hand up. Does anybody love the Son of Man? Trust Jesus is the King, so his people we will Jesus in the background like elevator music But we gon' celebrate him, relegate him, we refuse it They hate Christian hip-hop, I peep myself They say we too redundant, well let me repeat myself What I gotta say almost feels too real estate Sit back and feel the weight of what a real estate Cause yo, Jesus Christ got me in the real estate I'm purchased property, I feel like I'm real estate If the Father wasn't gracious, no synonym Again. He came straight blameless, no synonym Again. Nothing's been the same since, no synonym Again. Fakers lack his fragrance, no synonym This is not the picture in a frame to still Jesus Nah, we serve the, the rock, the harder than still Jesus So how are we gonna be silent, let the world still Jesus When the world and its trends pass away, it's still Jesus Stand up, hand up If you truly love the Son of Man Trust, Jesus is alive and his people he'll revive And his fame is gonna spread across the land What's up? Stand up, hand up Does anybody love the Son of Man? is the king, so his people we will sing and forever say worthy is the land. What's up? Ignoring the plain meaning. This is Ken Ham, CEO of Answers in Genesis, Creation Museum, and the Ark Encounter. The Apostle Paul references homosexuality three times in his New Testament letters. While Christians have always understood Paul as writing that homosexual behavior is sinful, some Christian influences are reinterpreting his words. They're claiming Paul was only against abuse of gay relationships common in Roman culture at the time. 
But if Paul was merely condemning abuse, why didn't he just say that? Why did he give a condemnation of homosexual behavior that's been interpreted as a complete condemnation of all gay relationships for 2,000 years? Is scripture really that unclear? No, such an interpretation twists scripture and ignores the text. Get answers to defend the clarity and truth of God's Word when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com and listen to this program again or view a transcript at AnswersRadio.com. Let me start this off with a hallelujah to Jesus, the sovereign ruler. This is not a rumor. Got the truth, so we about to school you. Check out a style maneuver. Shout it to you like the loudest group of Christ. Put us up from out the sewer. We don't have to doubt the future. Crashing our verses as we bask in his worship. You asking the purpose, partly to snatch cash from the furnace. To Jesus' extravagant service, immaculate purchase. He was smashing the serpent, and we only scratching the surface. He's the seed of what's conceived in the womb of a virgin. The sun emerges in the manger while the angels serenade him. It's the birth of the Savior, the greater ambient. Came a man, came as a lamb, and would be executed to execute the plan to substitute the sand. In the place of the wicked on the cross, he was lifted, but we considered him stricken and afflicted, just like the prophets predicted. He came at the proper moment to stop his opponent and lay down his life to offer atonement. He's the most magnificent, the total antithesis of insufficient, the blessed, the glorious, splendid, transcendent, difficult to comprehend, independent of space and time, but presently present, suspending the heavens with speech. From coast to coast, he speaks peace to wind and seas, got heavenly hosts easily. Posted on bended knees, controls the cosmos with the most authority. So we both in the most exalted King Christ the priest. He's the sovereign thriller, the awesome healer, the law fulfiller, the solemn killer, the fraud revealer. No God is realer, yeah. We can take any time in the scripture. Put the gate is a prominent picture. See his light shining bright in the night, and it's bright in the might, and the diamond in the mixture. See his name at all the renown, though. When he came for the law, that he found low. He was tamed and floss all around, but remained for the manger, the cross, or the clown. Yo, Satan had a choke hold on him. Fight for the rope, but dope, and then. All to the eyes of the S to the E to the end. That's what we hoping in. Written on it's spell check, the risen king can rinse clean the most rebellious. I was hell bound, now I'm spellbound. Word is born, I'm a bond servant to the word of life. Uh, call me a sellout, I was fought with a price. We gotta hope it won't fail us when we return to the dust. We will rise up just like the one who justified us. It's not wishful thinking when the truth's sinking. We are clinging to the promises of God bringing an everlasting kingdom. Nothing can compare to the worth of what we inherited. Nothing in heaven on earth can measure what Christ merited. The skies declare the affairs of his glorious care. The God who is there, who's aware, who delights in our prayer. His purposes are permanent and perfectly proportionate. Everything that orbits around his glory subordinate. He is the most excellent one, intrinsic, infinite son. Preeminent the name, par excellence, prenom, phenomenon. He's beyond phenomenon, you see. The father of cosmology, the abba of astronomy. He's part of we, a pottery. It's shocking Jesus died for me. The father, he adopted me and constantly provides for me. Whether or not I got degrees, you gotta see his odyssey. From sovereignty and lottery to poverty and robbery to resurrected bodily apocalyptic prophecy he's stopping all the mockery and scholarly snobbery that don't acknowledge him properly you ought to be on bended knee before the preeminent it's awfully arrogant to reject him to your detriment study the development from old to new testament you'll find a theme that's prevalent from age to age it's relevant crisis on its center stage forget religious sentiments the center on man with something less is what you're settling he is the most excellent exercising benevolence and blessing a remnant with the benefits of his inheritance yeah. the sinner sinners that Separated and segregated that severed the relations between man and his maker and placed Christ on his 
Costly cross and compensated his life, death and resurrection emancipated and gave us freedom from it all, freedom from the effects of the fall, freedom from Adam and Eve in the garden of Eden and from the law. So the saints stand and applaud his grace and glorious cause with hands raised, praising his name, singing glory to God. <laughs> What's your authority? This is Ken Ham, author, speaker, and blogger on the Bible's reliability and authority. Popular religious teachers today make claims like the New Testament only condemns abuse of gay relationships, not loving committed ones. They'll argue archaeology shows that homosexual abuses were common in Roman culture at that time, so that has to be what the Bible is condemning. But that's not what scripture actually says. These people are interpreting the Bible through limited evidence from archaeology. This relegates God's word to a higher authority, archaeology and man's ideas. Sinful human beings are putting themselves in authority over God's word. Scripture isn't fuzzy on our sexuality. It's crystal clear, and we just need to allow it to be our authority. There's so much more to discover when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com. You'll find answers to help you build a more biblical worldview when you go to AnswersRadio.com. Writing this to you, I really hope you hear my heart When thinking about describing you, I really don't know where to start Can't start at the beginning, cause you are before the beginning Way before the beginning, and this fallen world's distorted opinions It was just the holy trinity, ruling from infinity Glory blazed tremendously, loving one another endlessly Billions and billions of years ago, outside of what we know as time Nobody else was there to know, but Lord, here's the thing that blows my mind As long ago as that was Long ago as that was, you have not changed, Lord, oh Lord, 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 as long ago, as long ago, as long ago as that was, you're still the same, you have not changed, what can that mean, but my God is immutable, immutable, you are beautiful, you never change, you remain the Not just because of what you do, but simply because of who you are There's none like you in existence, you are God and you need no assistance Even though we show you resistance, you sent Jesus to close the distance That existed between God and man, according to your sovereign plan We changed many times in one lifespan, I changed even since this song began Lord, I'm so glad that you're not like us, all that you do will certainly last You are the rock that we can trust, shows us back in eternity past As long ago as that was, as long ago as that was have not changed, Lord, oh Lord, 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 as long ago, as long ago, as long ago as that was, you're still the 
still the same You have not changed What can that mean? But my God is immutable Immutable, you are beautiful You never change, you remain the same Immutable, beautiful You never change, never change Forever you reign, you remain the same You will never change, you will never change Immutable, beautiful Never change, never change. When I think about my ups and downs, all of my inconsistencies, all of my idiosyncrasies, still you pursue relentlessly. At times I wonder how this can be. Surely it's because of the cross. When Jesus paid the full penalty and bore the burden of sin's great cost. Saved by grace and faith in God. I look to Christ and I trust he died. So even though I'm being sanctified, I can't be any more justified. His work is finished, that cannot change. And with this knowledge, I am free. Forever this grace, it will remain. Because of what happened on Calvary. As long ago as that was, as long ago as that was, you have not changed, Lord, oh Lord, Lord, Lord. As long ago, as long ago, as long ago as that was, you're still the same, you have not changed. What can that mean? But my God is immutable. Immutable, you are beautiful. God's Word hasn't changed. This is Ken Ham on a mission to call the church back to God's Word and the Gospel. It's been hard to watch many in the church cave to the pressure of the culture by radically reinterpreting the Bible's teaching on marriage and sexuality. But think about this. If we need to reinterpret all of the Bible's teachings on sexuality, this means the church has misunderstood the Bible for 2,000 years. And it means we're only properly understanding it when there's massive pressure to change what God's Word says. Those who accept homosexual behavior are reading their ideas into the Bible, making it say what they want it to say. But God's Word has said the same thing since it was written. Marriage was designed by God and marriage is one man and one woman. Be equipped to start your thinking with God's Word in every area when you go to AnswersRadio.com and subscribe for free email insights from Ken Ham at AnswersRadio.com. All right, here we go, kids, gather round. A brand new sound to praise the one who has the crown. In today's lesson, we'll talk about the Holy Bible, the most important book we all need for survival. The Bible is God's message for this world. It's for every man and woman, every boy and girl. And that message is that if we turn to Christ and place our trust in Him, we'll have eternal life. Now when we're at church, yeah, it's fun, it's cool. When we hear a lot of stories in Sunday school, like Jacob and Noah, Moses and Daniel, David and Jonah, Joseph and Samuel, but all the little stories tell one big story about the God who made all things for his glory. So as we read the Bible, it's important that we see this. There's only one hero and his name is Jesus.
In the story of the Bible, where should we begin? When God made the whole wide world just by speaking. By his great might, he said, let there be light. The light he called day and the dark he called night. He made the earth and the seas, the dirt and the seeds, the herds and the trees, the birds and the bees. But the big surprise God had up his sleeve. On day number six, created Adam and Eve. Made in the image of the beautiful most high. God told them, be fruitful and multiply. Everything's yours, but that tree do not try. Because in the day you eat it, you're surely going to die. I'm sure you know the rest. Yes, they failed the test. And ever since then, the world has been a big mess. So as we read the Bible, it's important that we see this. There's only one hero, and his name is Jesus. When we read God's word today, the greatest saints had their flaws on full display. And it was written down for us in order that we may recognize that Christ is the only way. Adam ate forbidden fruit and lost his life. Abraham got scared and lied about his wife. Sarah laughed to herself when she heard God's promise. Rebecca encouraged her son to be dishonest. Aaron used craft to make a golden calf. Moses got mad, struck the rock with a staff. David sinned greatly, even lost his baby. And Jacob, he was just all around shady. The point is not to make light of our flaws, but to show that every one of us needs the cross. So as we read the Bible, it's important that we see this. There's only one hero when his name is Jesus. Did God say? This is Ken Ham, CEO of the ministry that built a full-size Noah's Ark south of Cincinnati. Many Christians today claim the Bible affirms loving, committed, gay relationships, but their radical reinterpretations of the Bible put sinful man as the authority over God's word. And this isn't the first time this has happened. In Genesis, Satan tempts Eve with the question, did God really say? He got her to question God's word and put her own ideas and desires above God's clear instruction. And the results were catastrophic. This new attack on God's word is no different. It's just another version of, did God really say? Instead of questioning God's word in our sinfulness, we need to trust it. It's God's word that's our authority. Plan your visit to our full-size Noah's Ark when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com. Children are free through December 31st, so bring the whole family. Visit AnswersRadio.com. Yeah, he made us all, yo. Yeah, God made us all, yo. God made me and you. Sing, children. No, we He did 
committed to show off his glory and worth. In Genesis 1, what we see in each verse is God made a world that is truly diverse. From icebergs to insects, tornadoes to trees, from lions to lizards, flamingos to fleas. Each in their own way that God they are praising. The difference is cry out, God is amazing. But the crown jewel of the work of his hands are made in his image, both woman and man. We're not accidents, we are part of his plan. Yup, God made me and you. Let's go. never the same. Each person is different, unique in their frame. God made them all, each kind and each sort. He made some people tall and some people short. Dark skin, light skin, and all in between. In each color and shade, his beauty is seen. The Lord knows the number of hairs on your head. Whether brown or black, whether blonde, gray or red. What some call ethnicity and others call race. We should celebrate as the gift of God's grace. You're wonderfully made from your feet to your face. Yup, God made me and you. Let's go. We see what God's love is about There's no type of person that Jesus left out Because Jesus died and rose from the grave All those who trust in the Lord will be saved In the book of Revelation, chapter number 7 The church from all times is gathered in heaven Each tribe and people, language and nation All thanking God for the gift of salvation Together, forever, with saints of all kinds Through each the glory of the Lord's gonna shine This is exactly what God has designed When God made me and you, let's go Go. like a letter at all. It's structured more like a sermon. 
There's also this line in chapter 2, verse 3. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? That salvation, first spoken by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard. Paul would not have said that. In Galatians 1.12, Paul said of the gospel that he preached, I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Hebrews, originally written in Greek, contains some of the most challenging Greek in the New Testament. In fact, it sounds like Luke's writing. So the likelihood is that Hebrews is a sermon that was preached by Paul, written down by Luke, so more people could hear it. Whether Jew or Gentile, the book of Hebrews will equip you in every good thing to do His will by doing in us what is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. When we understand the text. Does the Bible condone polygamy? Let's start with the patriarchs. Abraham was married to Sarah, but then he also married Hagar and later Keturah. His son Isaac had one wife, Rebekah, but then their son Jacob had two wives who were sisters, Leah and Rachel, and then he also married Bilhah and Zipporah. Prophets like Moses. Well, Moses is never mentioned as having more than one wife. Zipporah was his first wife in Exodus 2.21, and then he married a Cushite woman in Numbers 12, a union his siblings Aaron and Miriam disapproved of because she was a foreigner. But then there are the kings like David. He had at least eight wives we know of, and there were probably others. And his son Solomon had 700 wives. So God is apparently cool with polygamy, right? No. Narrative is not normative. The Bible never speaks favorably of anyone having more than one wife. In Matthew 19, 4-6, Jesus said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So God's intention for marriage from the beginning was one man and one woman. Furthermore, pastors and deacons who are to be models of Christian maturity are to have only one wife. Jesus has one bride, the church, whom he loved and gave himself for. So let us follow his word and his example and keep marriage sacred when we understand the text. There is no right and wrong. Is, is rape right or wrong? Objectively. It, it doesn't It doesn't matter. I don't look down on rape. Never look down on that. I'm, try, like I'm trying to explain to you again very clearly. I do not place judgment on anybody's lesson, anybody's experience. You have to realize and you have to come to... Oh, rape isn't objectively wrong? In order to learn what's right, you're wrong. But you wouldn't look down on it. Why you doing me like that, bro? In this reality that we live in, to some degree, if you if you truly believe in something, it becomes your truth and it becomes your reality. And how? But if I believe that the moon is made out of cheese, and I really believe that, am I right? There's other elements of postmodernism. One of them is that human nature is merely a social construct. For more than a hundred years now, the very idea of an objective reality has been seriously and continually questioned. There is no inherent meaning for life by experts in many different fields, from physics and biology to philosophy. Why would you think that human nature is only a social construct? Well, here's why. Because that means you can construct it any way you want to. Is there such thing as absolute truth? When you have a belief system, okay, and you, and you truly believe in something, um, you created your own reality. You created your own truth. So it's subjective. So I'm asking not subjective truth. I'm saying objective truth, right? So you may have a subjective truth. I like vanilla chocolate. But in, in this world, 
in this reality that we live in, um, to some degree, if you if you truly believe in something, it becomes your truth and it becomes your reality. But if I believe that the moon is made out of cheese, and I really believe that, am I right? Well, I mean, there are people who walk around who have beliefs like that. Yeah. And unfortunately, to some degree, on that spiritual aptitude, we call them a little insane. Why? If they get to decide for themselves, why are they wrong? There is no right and wrong. It's just the level of, of growth where you're at. If there's no right or wrong, well, then there's no difference between a man who kills his dog to feed his starving son or a man who kills his son to feed his starving dog. Think about it for a moment. Once we remove God from the equation, then we are removing the only objective foundation whereby which we may emphatically call something good or bad. All these ways of thinking is a product of evolutionary propaganda. And now everybody gets to decide for themselves what is morally correct or morally evil. Society is teaching our kids that they are nothing more than evolved pond scum. Right? We are molecules in motion, merely making decisions, synapses flashing off inside of our brain. And if things are evolving, how do we know they're evolving for the better? I mean, why can't they be evolving for the worse? There would be no way of knowing because there's no one in charge telling us what is right and wrong. And I understand the atheist comes along and says, I don't need your book to tell me what is right and wrong. I agree, because you have a conscience. Your conscience bears witness with what you do, and that is God-given. That is not evolved. It would be like two weeds are growing up inside of a field. And I were to ask you the question, hey, which weed is growing correctly? Huh? The weeds are just growing. Exactly. One person makes this decision, and this person makes this decision morally. Which decision is correct? Neither, if evolution is true. Decisions now we're talking about preferences. There is no superior meaning to life if there is no God. Judges 17.6, when there was no leader or ruler in Israel, every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Holly, where do you get your information from? Um, through my own natural experience. And uh, left everybody, does everybody get to come up with their own experience to decide their own fate? Yeah, absolutely. We mentioned Buddhism and Christianity and Judaism and absolutely. Mormonism. What I'm trying to understand is when you mention all these different religions, yeah. and they can be contradictory from one religion to the next religion. I don't, I don't well, for example, right, so within Islam, they believe that Jesus was just a prophet, mm-hmm. right? Within Jehovah's Witness, Jesus is Michael the Archangel. Within Mormonism, Jesus is the spirit brother of Lucifer. Within Christianity, Jesus is the Son of God, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords. These are mutually exclusive positions. So how can they all be right? The the thing with it is, again, you have to realize that there are some truths with religion, and there are some falseness with religion. Some of these teachings that they teach you about the Muslim religion and and they, they teach you to, you know, strap a bomb on you. That's just ridiculous. Now, why is that ridiculous? So I would agree with you. That teaching was never, never come across. But what is your ultimate source of authority, Ollie? What he says next is going to be key for the rest of the interview. If he says that each person gets to decide for himself what is wrong, well, then we are merely arguing preferences once again. It's like one person saying, I like football, I like baseball. Uh, 
the ultimate source of authority that I've experienced is your mind. And there we have it. Each person gets to rely upon their own mind and their own experiences to determine what is right and wrong. Remember, if you believe this, then you can never get down on somebody for what they believe, no matter how heinous and crazy it may seem. Uh, it seems like a lot of people these days are more about themselves rather than other people. Why would that be important? If, if everybody gets to decide, there's no right or wrong. There, there isn't. Um, oh, I'm not. I, for me, this is for me personally. I can't talk about anybody else. No. Yeah. Okay. We're supposed to be so advanced that we're all supposed to work together. We're supposed to have a unity within this planet. As who? Well, well, that didn't take long for him to make a truth claim. Bearing in mind, he has no foundation whereby which he may call something true. Sure, subjectively true, but not objectively true. In order to really understand and grow spiritually. It's a service to others. That's what really makes you a better human being. So serving makes you a better person. But remember, there's no objective basis whereby which we may call something better. If you want to learn how to combat evolution and postmodern thinking, then I want to encourage you to pick up the Evidence Bible or the School of Biblical Evangelism textbook, both found at livingwaters.com. Is rape right or wrong, objectively? Um, there's no question about, you know, rape and why not? But why not? In the spirit of what's happening, it, it doesn't. It doesn't matter. I don't look. I you don't look down on I rape. never look down on that. I'm, try, look, I'm no. trying to explain to you again very clearly. I do not place judgment on anybody's lesson, anybody's wow, experience. Okay. You have to realize, and you have to come to. So rape isn't objectively uh, wrong. You, you, for me, in my space, like but you I wouldn't say, look down on it. I, I have no judgments on it. I, I can't have judgments on it because in order to learn what's right, you have to experience what's wrong. Is it wrong to judge people? Through my, my teachings of Jesus, Jesus wasn't someone who goes walking around saying, hey, you're this, you're that. And of course not, but he did call out the Pharisees and the scribes for doing wrong. You know, you brood of vipers. Who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? There's no question about it. If it's in your space, if it's in your actual... So it's okay to judge. I, I, I'm trying to nail you. I'm trying to understand you because you keep going back and forth, not making any sense. Honestly, I'm with respectfully. Yeah, let me give me a, give me a second because it's hard to. God doesn't have judgments because this is the world that we're here to experience, really. And there is no judgments because when you do things that are good, you go. You know, you do things that are good, you, you advance. If you do things that are bad, you advance this way. But there is no good or bad if we get to decide. Um, we always have a choice. You right. have a choice of what you but choose you, to but do. But we don't know if it's objectively right or wrong. If we get to decide. Does that make sense? Uh, How does it not make sense? I mean, help me to understand yes, your position. Yes, cause, cause if, he, if he comes along and he says rape is a good thing, and you, you and I were like, oh, Mark, that's crazy. But he decided that. And he's evolving to a place where he really believes that. And he says, you guys have not arrived or enlightenment that, to a that's, place. That's a contract between him and God. Was Adolf Hitler objectively wrong in killing people? And, uh, these are some really dark, heavy, heavy situations on our planet. One of, one of the worst situations. I agree with him. But dark by what standards? A lot of these people, they think this is life. This is life. This is it. 9-11, the people who, it's a blink in immortality. You're, you're placing judgment on this planet as if this is the only life in existence that we have. How would you define God? If you were to describe God, how would you describe God? Uh, um, it, it's hard to say. 
A.W. Tozer said, what you believe about God is the most important thing about you. And you can tell a lot about a person based upon what they think about God. Who who was Jesus? How would you define, was he a good man? Was he a bad man? Was he an evil man? Was he a liar? Was he a lord? Was he a lunatic? Who was Jesus? Well, I mean, honestly, if you look at the books and history, I don't think they have all the information about him, but he was a very advanced spiritual being. Did he have good teaching? Um, Absolutely, but unfortunately, just like everything, you have to take what works for you or what makes sense, because over the years, all the books have been changed, all the teachings have been manipulated, and the end of it all, he, he taught something that was very important, and what he taught was um, to basically master yourself, and the temple of God is within you, and once you have that, then, you know, then you're a part of Jesus. Other than Jesus, you weren't meant to follow him. You are meant to be greater than him. Hold on. All he said, we don't have Jesus' teaching, but then he said Jesus taught that we are not to follow him. How does he know that if we don't have Jesus' teaching? And the truth of the matter is we do have Jesus' teaching, and Jesus said, follow me. God has given us his commandments to demonstrate that when he does judge us, because he does care about right and wrong, it would demonstrate whether or not we have access to get to heaven or hell. So the Ten Commandments demonstrate that we can't make it to heaven. Like, for example, how many lies do you think you've told over the course of your life, quickly? Uh, a lot, too many times, probably. And how many things do you think you've stolen over the course of your life? I, I, honestly, I don't, I don't know. Jesus said if you ever look with sexual desire in your heart, lustful thoughts of the mind, you know, you look at porn or you do anything like that, you've committed adultery in your heart. Are you innocent or guilty of that? Oh, I'm sure I'm guilty of that. Okay. <laughs> Have you ever used God's name in vain? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I would dare to say you probably wouldn't use your mom's name in vain because you love her. You'd share. Well, you might probably, if I get angry enough, I probably would. i got to be honest. We've broken God's law. All of you broken God's law. And if God really does care about humanity, you and me and the child next door, that he's going to punish people that break his law, the Ten Commandments. Right? We think of... There are so many people that don't get caught for murder or rape or grand theft auto, things of this nature. Well, God, don't you care? And I would say that he does care. So he has set up a day in which he will judge the world rightly. He sent a son, Jesus Christ, who was born of a virgin, to live a perfect life, died a cruel death, have hands of people like you and I, and then he rose again from the dead three days later defeated the grave, and what God requires of all men everywhere is to repent and to place their trust in him. And the moment you do that, you would be born again and having fellowship with God. And so therefore, when you are judged after this world, because you're right, this is not all there is, because there's literally hell to pay because God is holy and God is perfect. The Bible says the eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch of the good as well as the evil. So the good news of Christianity is that all men can be forgiven if they turn to him in faith. I appreciate you all. I wish you you. all well. God bless you. Thank you so much. Don't forget to check out our Living Waters podcast. It's called the Living Waters podcast. I mean, we're four idiots talking about serious things. It's an all-new season of Way of the Master. What's your name? Lovey. Lovey? I can't call you Lovey. I'm a married man. Now, is there an afterlife? What do you think? 
You don't want to force your faith on somebody, but at the same time, it's healthy and good to explore yeah, yeah, the yeah, truth, yeah, right? Do you think ultimately sin is wrong because it violates the standards of a holy God? I'm a good person. I'm going to give you a moral speedometer to judge if you've broken God's law or not. I've never read the Bible ever. My dad told me to do that's the next thing I need to do. It's the world's biggest selling book of all time. You should be educated on what it says. you know what it says? follow it, you're a sheep. Nah. No, it yeah, doesn't. That's what it says. It you're a sheep. If you don't, you're a lost sheep. You're no, no. You don't have to go to hell for all eternity. So God has commissioned us to share the gospel. That's the good news. But we have to remember the role of the Holy Spirit, right? The role of the Holy Spirit is to convict and to convert. You're smiling. Why are you smiling? Well, because what you said makes sense. But when you hear this, is this doing something in your heart and mind? Is this kind of becoming personal for you? It's freeing my soul. Join us for the new season of Way of the Master. Visit wayofthemaster.com. My name's Tom. I've been a homeowner for 19 That was from Living Waters on their YouTube page. Sorry about the, the commercial then. <laughs> Had to stop it. Uh, thanks for listening to Total Radio. What I'm going to do now, I'm going to go out with Yancy and friends and the VIBO. Till next time, bye for now.